0: Welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. my pleasure today to introduce Hack Dang. Hack Dang, AKA Trex313, is ranked in the top 10 for all time biggest winners for online poker with lifetime winnings of over $8 million. That's a lot. Since then, Hack's co-founded Happy Endings Hospitality, a restaurant group in the Northern Virginia area with six restaurants and counting. Today, you're gonna quickly get a sense of just how Hack has been so successful, both as a poker player and an entrepreneur. Hack is incredibly thoughtful and he's a really resilient human being who acts with clear intention. So it's really a big honor, gratitude for having him here today. Today, Hack and I are going to be discussing how to play positive sum games and the transcendence of competition. This is a conversation for elite performers in high stakes pursuits. So if you're an entrepreneur, a trader, or a feller poker pro, there is a certain drive and competitiveness that you know is necessary to make it to the top. But here's the question for today. Can you be an elite competitor without that competitiveness leaking over into your relationships and personal life? Thanks, Hack, for joining us. Really grateful to have you here. Can't wait to explore this topic of Positive sum Games.
1: Hey, uh, what's up, Chris? Thanks for the Really kind introduction. I feel like you gave me a lot of credit there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's set the table, shall we? So at one point you were playing in some of the biggest poker games in the world. And I mean, $8 million, obviously you did pretty well. For those of you guys who didn't have the honor of sitting down at, at Rail Heaven, just tell us what was that like for you?
1: It was actually pretty interesting because the way that I got into poker, it all felt like really natural in terms of climbing the stakes and getting to, to the higher stakes games and actually winning in them. So if I were to break down the strategy, I don't think I actually did anything special to get there, but somehow I ended up there like anyways. And I guess, I don't know, like Z and I just started playing poker and we bought it for like 200 bucks and we we're playing $25 buy-ins and then we we're winning. And then so we went to 50 and then we were winning. So then we went to 100. And we're winning. And then we kept doing that all the way up until we got to the high stakes games. And next thing you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, you're playing so high. And it didn't feel like it was something we did purposely. It just kind of happened. So I would attribute it to right place, right time. And there, there are probably some nuances to my my strategy as well that I could probably discuss. But but yeah, most of it was right place, right time, I think.
0: I'm sure there's a lot of nuances and it does strike me that part of being successful at the top level is to just treat it as just another day, right? If it becomes this really high pressure, big deal, it's going to be really difficult to perform well. And it seems for you, the stakes almost, you weren't feeling them. It didn't matter as much as someone from the outside might expect. And I imagine there's a necessary like resiliency that you need to have, right? If you're losing hundred thousand dollar pots, like how are you able to stomach that? What did you do that allowed you to, you know, remain disciplined, even keel despite the large swings? I mean, obviously in
1: poker, very early on you learn that if you are emotional, then it's bad for your, your bankroll. Like very early on, you know, like it's really hard to climb the stakes if every time you lose the pot, you know, you're like slamming your laptop or you're, you're, you know, throwing your mouse at the wall. And I'm sure, you know, you play poker too. So you can probably kind of relate. You know, maybe you've seen some friends that, that don't have like that type of control. But I think that was really helpful for me because viewing it as a game, understanding, hey, I made the best play possible. And this is what ended up happening. If I were to go back in time, I would still make the same play. Then, It allows you to kind of separate yourself, your emotions from like the actual end result. Cause you don't actually have control over the end result. You only have control over what you did leading up to it. Now, in some cases, of course, maybe you made the wrong play, the play that you shouldn't have made, but then that's a different conversation. And you're supposed to be able to look at that after, you know, after the session and be like, Oh, you know what? I should have done this instead of that. But it takes a certain level of, I don't want to call it robotic because it diminishes what it is, but it's kind of like, I feel the emotions. But right now the emotions aren't serving me. So, you know, we're just going to keep playing on a more rational level, if you will.
0: I think that's an interesting question about what role that emotions play in high stakes decision making. I think there's a large school of thought in poker and trading that emotions are the enemy. Emotions are something to be suppressed, repressed, that Emotions are going to cause us to make decisions that we might regret later, that we're going to increase our variance, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to tilt. But it seems like emotions can't be avoided. It's more about working with them. And you, and you think you describe that as like, does this emotion serve me right now? What have you found works for you in terms of being able to work with your emotions?
1: The crazy thing is if you asked me that question like five years ago, I would have given you a different answer 10 years ago. I definitely would have given you a different answer. And you know, now I would give you probably a slightly different answer from five years ago. So it it like my lens on that has changed over, over time through like life experience 10 years ago, I was playing like the high stakes games. I was swinging like six figures on a regular day. I could wake up in the morning and by lunchtime be up, you know, six figures or down six figures. But if, if I was emotional about it, then that would make it even worse. You know, if I lost six figures and I was emotional, that could easily be uh, a very, very bad day, much worse than the, the six-figure initial loss. So I guess 10 years ago, because it was necessary for me doing what I was doing to kind of ignore the emotions or have it take a back seat, the answer back then would have been, okay, look, your emotions... They are not meant to control you. You're kind of in the driver's seat. If you let your emotions control you, then you are not almost like you're weak in a way. And I think in poker, a lot of people will probably agree with that sentiment because if you're emotional at the table, rarely does it ever help you. I assume in trading is probably very similar. You know, if you're, you know, buying or selling stocks or crypto, and let's say you make the right play based on everything, you know, but then the, ne- the next day, like, you know, your, your portfolio doesn't look that good then it doesn't really help to be emotional in that state. So 10 years ago, that was my answer, you know? And I think within the industry I was in, it forced me to be even more robotic about those things. Kind of like, all right, look, I even had a day where I lost seven figures and I was just kind of like, all right. And I I still remember that day. and And I remember the next morning I woke up and then for the first 10 seconds, I forgot I had lost seven figures the last day. So I was feeling great for about 10 seconds. Then I remembered and it hit me again. And it maybe took me about a day or two to get over that. But that, honestly, that was to me that was pretty good. Normally, I, I, up to that point in my life, I would have thought it would have taken a lot longer. Now, if you ask me to answer that question today, what role does emotions play? Now, this is my opinion, and I'm I'm not sure why I stand fully on this yet. But it's through life you aggregate a lot of experiences, and and like through like your body and your mind, your emotions are are trying to tell you something. The experiences that you've aggregated they create a lens for you. And then when you see, when you experience something, it goes through that lens of experience and then you feel something. And even if you can't put words on it, it's there for a reason. And you have to kind of like, in order to optimally understand who you are and what you're capable of, you have to understand where that lens came from, how it was formed. And your emotions is like a key to understanding that lens. So now I would say emotions probably play a much bigger role and it shouldn't just be ignored as if it didn't have any type of benefit whatsoever.
0: Yeah. I think there's a real subtlety to this mindset that is so critical. It's one of those, you know, mindset's one of the things that just really compounds over the years, especially when you talk about things like resiliency, how do you get out of bed the day after you've lost a million dollars? And it really requires the separation from your decision and the result of that decision especially when you're in a field that's really noisy like poker or trading or in a pursuit where there's so many things that are outside of your control like starting a restaurant and the pandemic hits right what are you going to do it's timing so much of luck is timing so how do you approach understanding your decision making process right? How do you separate out the results of your decision from the decision yourself? You talk about this notion that I find really useful of, you know, what are my emotions trying to tell me that everything I'm receiving is feedback. It's useful in some way. Do you have any techniques or strategies for allowing yourself to be objective, especially when things aren't going well?
1: I do think objectivity is really hard to do just because like, just by nature, you're not objective, like your experiences are getting filtered through your own personal lens. And even if you try your best to, you know, take that 30,000 foot view or that third person view and be like, well, I'm, I'm going to be objective here. That's getting filtered through your own mind and your, your own body and your own like lens, if you will. And and so that objectivity is automatically already tainted. So in poker, it was a lot easier to be objective. And I'll tell you why in poker, and obviously with trading... I would say with poker, it's even easier to be objective than with trading, because in poker, you can see your hand and see how you got your money in and see if it was actually a really good result. And within five seconds after the rest of the hand gets dealt, you know exactly whether you should have made that play or not. And trading it's probably, you know, one step further removed. And I think at least in the restaurant industry, it's even like a couple more steps removed because there's so many confounding factors that you can't see whether your action that you took was tied to the, the end result to measure whether or not you were able to be objective in that situation. Okay. So the original question was how I try to be objective. I spent a lot of time meditating. I think that helps a lot. I think that when you sit down and you're quiet and you're meditating, you're bringing awareness to, to your mind. You're starting to get a view of that lens, if you will, paying attention to your, your mind while you're meditating, seeing what emotions come up and when they come up, that helps you understand that lens better. And I think that that helps a lot in terms of, I don't know if that helps entirely, but that's at least for me, the first step of being more objective. Understanding, hey, when I'm around this person, my heart's beating faster. Why is that? You know, that's the first step to starting to understand that lens. And until you can understand that lens, I don't think you can be anywhere near objective. So that would be my first step. And that's the first step I've taken in my life.
0: Yeah, I think that having a practice like meditation that forces you to slow down and listen is really essential. I like to say that if we, if we don't respect our own boundaries, the universe won't respect our boundaries, right? If everything is, everything is urgent, we'll be confronted with urgent things all the time. So it's really important to create the space and listen to what the world is telling us, listen to what our body is telling us and tune into those signals to treat them as relevant. You've talked about last time we spoke that some of the things that you felt were necessary to succeed in the biggest poker games in the world didn't hit you the right way. So in poker, just like trading, it's inherently zero sum. You sit down at a table and everyone is trying to take each other's money. There might be, hey, we're here to have fun, all this type of stuff. Hey, we're friends off the table, but like you sit down and it's very like killer instinct, doggy dog. Like we are here to see, like, may the best person win. And that there's some second order effects of that. You know, it's hard to mix friendships and work when you're trying to take each other's money. And that there's this competitiveness of always needing to find the source of edge. That it's difficult for that lens with which you view the world, right? As you said, we view the world through the lens of our experience. It's difficult for this to not leak over into the rest of your life. I would love to hear a little bit more about like your experiences playing the zero-sum game. And you know maybe what role did this play in your decision to, to walk away from poker? I guess to talk about the
1: zero sum game thing like in poker like when you go to let's say a casino or like in a live casino in Macau for instance and you're playing against you know people and and you've done this before so you kind of understand in that casino setting a lot of times it's not like the best place to be you know there's people that you don't know if you can trust you probably shouldn't trust them you know let's say somebody's like down a lot of money they might do anything to kind of like angle shoot their way back into like break even or or whatever the case may be. Maybe they're desperate. And so you kind of have to like be on your toes a little bit about, Hey, is this guy trying to be my friend? Or is he actually just trying to like, you know, get close with me so that, so that he can take my money easier. And obviously, even if somebody is like honest in the game, like, you know, where they're not going to like steal money from you directly or angle shoot you at the end of the day, when you're sitting at that table, you know, in order for me to win, that guy has to lose. And he knows in order for For him to win, I have to lose too. So at the end of the day, the questions I'm asking in my head when I'm at the casino or in this type of setting is, hey, is this guy trying to take money from me? How do I take money from this guy? Is he dishonest? Like, do I need to be more careful? Like, this guy's kind of sketchy. And so, you know, you're asking those questions because you need to ask those questions in order to exist in that environment and not, you know, have your money taken from you. But the problem that I didn't realize until after I got out of the game was, A lot of times people say you should leave work at work and, you know, home at home. And, you know, once you step into your home, you kind of like leave work at work. I just don't think that the mind and the body works like that. It wasn't designed to, you know, so the questions that I'm automatically asking every time I go into the casino and, you know, trying to like make money off of, off of like other poker players and stuff. And, and, you know, not, not because I had bad intent. It's just the nature of the game and the environments that the game runs in. i found it. And I didn't know this until after the fact, I literally like after the fact, the first time I even realized this after I kind of pulled myself away from the game, the questions that I was asking, I realized I was asking those questions, like, you know, even in settings at home or like when I meet friends or like when I'm just in a social setting where, where people are just like trying to like make connections and stuff like that. But then I'm just kind of like second guessing, Hey, is that dude like kind of like sketchy? Does he have ulterior motives and stuff like that? And I think you can't separate that line very easily i think for myself at least you can pretend like you can but you know you should bring some awareness around whether or not you can or can't so when switching over to the restaurant life in restaurant you know sometimes people play play the restaurant game in zero sum manner or even it can be played in a positive sum manner as well so now in poker there was very little room for positive sum stuff in poker in fact i don't even know if it existed maybe like the friendships that you can form you know outside of the game but But in restaurants, there are solutions where both sides can win. There are solutions where, you know, like, you know, I wake up in the morning and I I start asking questions like, wait, how do I make this more valuable for the customer? So like when they pay $5 for this thing, you know, they're so happy about it that they would have paid like, you know, 10, 15 or $20. And so, you know, they're happy. So they win. If the $5 makes sense for my business, then we win. And then it becomes like this, like, you know, the pie gets bigger for everybody, and then I ask the same question about, hey, how do I make the work experience even better for you know, my team? Because if I can make the work experience better for them and it doesn't feel like work, then they like being there, which is nice for me as a business owner, but it's nice for them as a, as a teammate as well. And then it becomes like this, this self-sustainable ecosystem where the teammates taking care of the customers, the customers taking care of the business and the business takes care of, and it's like this little ecosystem. And then over time, that pie can actually get bigger if you, if you do it right. Now, I'm I'm not not great at it yet, but when I started asking different questions, I was able to see different solutions. And I never would have asked those questions in a poker room. And that, that was a big realization for me.
0: It's tough. I think the meta point here that a lot of your life trajectory is determined by the questions that you ask yourself. Something that I've found over and over again. And thank you for the the excellent definition of positive sum games versus zero sum games. So I'll kind of paraphrase that, that a positive sum game is where you find solutions where both parties can win. And the point you're making that if you are looking at things through this lens of in order for me to do well, someone else needs to do Not as well, then that that's going to extend over to the way that you deal with people in all situations. And instead, if we can look at opportunities rather than fighting over the same slice of pie to expand the pie, then that creates a lot more alignment. And I I believe it's probably much more long-term sustainable. So it also brings to mind this notion that I heard from a friend of mine the other day, Sasha. That when you choose your life path, be very careful about thinking about what context is that life path going to put you in, right? It's this belief that we talk about at forcing function a lot that all behavior is contextual. The environment that you put yourself in to a large extent is going to affect the behavior that you have and thus like your beliefs, how you see yourself, all of those flow from that. So if you're in an environment where hyper-competitive behavior is rewarded, you're likely to become a hyper-competitive person. If you're in an environment where altruistic positive sum behavior is rewarded, you're likely to start to move into that direction. So if you are becoming a poker player, you're going to hang out in casinos and people who frequent casinos. If you're going to become a trader you're going to be hanging out with people who think of the world in terms of one-minute charts. And your blood pressure is likely to go up, and you're going to start to think of everything in terms of one-minute charts. So it's really useful to try to abstract a level up and think about, well, what are the contexts that I want to place myself in? What type of person do I want to be? And what's an environment that's supportive of that? And for you, it seemed like it was joining up with Z and taking on this new challenge of opening up your first restaurant. Tell me about that transition, you know, going from high stakes poker to restaurant tour. I know it's always a messy one. What was the hardest part of that transition for you? Oh my God, man.
1: I did not want to open that first restaurant. It was Z's idea. (laughs) You know, it's always Z's idea. My relationship with Z is definitely a very interesting one where he's the one that kind of pushes the envelope and I'm kind of the one that's like, like, hey man, how are we going to make this work? So it's kind of like a push pull type situation. And Z probably pulled me all the way to the high stakes games, but I'm sure I was probably somebody that, that helps Z stay out of trouble, you know, not playing in games that were too big for his bankroll and, you know, things like that too. So, so the analogy that I like is he's kind of like the gas and I'm the brake in a car and you need both for it to work well. Now Z decided to drive this car into the restaurant industry and he was flooring, he was kind of trying to floor it into the restaurant industry. And I'm like, Hey man, we are doing really well at poker. So why would you want to, we have at least a few more years, you know, doing this until the game becomes, you know, not as worth it. So why would you want to go into this industry that's notoriously known for being like the hardest like industry? But I think something about that challenge of, Hey, like it is the hardest industry. So let's go see if we can do it. Like that gets Z out of bed. So Z Z decided to open this restaurant and Keep in mind, like my family has no restaurant experience whatsoever, zero. My restaurant experience is probably the same as anybody that has eaten at a restaurant. You know, that's about it. So Z opens his first restaurant. I remember Z telling me, he was like, yeah, don't worry, man. We're going to open it. We're going to be in and out in like a month. The systems will be up and running and then it'll just be printing money. And yeah, in and out in a month. And, you know, obviously that didn't happen. You know, this is now 10 years later. We opened the first restaurant and I remember it was probably, I think, 2012 around there. The biggest challenge was, I don't know, this this is a challenge. This is a story that like sticks out in my head. So like, keep in mind, 2012, I was probably still like making like, like on high stakes DB, I think I was probably still like pulling in, you know, close to around a million a year playing poker. And it didn't require that much effort because, you know, we had already, I had already understood the game. To that point? I knew which games I couldn't, couldn't play in. And I kind of already had it like streamlined into my life. But now we enter, we open a business, literally never done this restaurant thing before. We hired a general manager who had like 30 years in the industry, but Z fired that dude one month after opening, because we found that he was like a little bit sketchy. And then, so we had to figure this whole thing out ourselves. I'll give Z credit. Z is the one that probably did a lot of the figuring out. I was just kind of there to kind of support. And I distinctly remember one day at 10 PM, we closed at 10 PM, our dishwasher who was like this 17 year old kid who probably his first job. He thought, because we closed at 10 PM, he like, you know, that's when he gets to go home. So he left like at 10 PM, but he had, if you have ever worked in a restaurant, you would know after closing, there's like, you know, hour, two hours worth of like side work, washing dishes, like cleaning up everything and resetting it for the next day. So he just left at 10 PM. And then me and me and my younger brother, Oh, we were left with like this pile of dishes, the restaurant, we have no systems, no checklist, nothing in place yet. So we're just like, working till 2 a.m. by ourselves to like clean this whole restaurant. And then finally at 2 a.m., we pull all the trash cans, like, you know, all the trash we had accumulated from the dinner time, pulled it all the way out to the dumpster. That was like, I don't know, like 100 yards away from our, our store. So it was our first month in the building. It's a condo building. And specifically, the landlord was like, hey, listen, never throw your trash in, into this dumpster. This is for the condo people. The dumpster only comes once a week, like to pick this up. This is your trash can. They'll come once every like day. You guys have nasty smelling seafood. If you put it in this trash can, it will be really bad. And then so we get to the dumpster, and then the apartment dumpster was full of our trash from the entire day. It was just like our workers didn't know, and they were just filling that trash can with like empty bags of like you know crawfish like heads and just all and it's nasty seafood stuff. And then 2 a.m. I'm tired. O's tired. You know, I'm making seven figures a year playing poker. I don't have to do this, but then it's 2 AM. And then I'm like, wait, what should we do? So me and O just get into the dumpster. And then we're just like picking up these bags of nasty crawfish, and shrimp juice dripping all over us and like hooking into the next dumpster to make sure we don't get in trouble with the landlord. Cause it's our first few months in the building. And I was in that trash and like, what am I doing with my life? Like, why, why is this happening to me? You know? And that might have been the most tilt I've been on, you know I mean I've lost like a lot of money playing poker before, but that might have been the most tilt I've been on. so I know perhaps when you were asking the question about challenges, maybe that wasn't the answer you were expecting, but that was at least one very challenging moment, just like understanding as a business owner, you have to be doing a lot of like the stuff up front that when you don't have your systems down in place yet, you have to be down to like get into the the trenches and I guess into the dumpster if that's necessary <laughs> and. And do the work so that was the hardest part for me at least
0: that's a great visual yeah going from million dollar poker to dumpster diving and having that realization of like huh what did i what did i get myself into so you talk about how z gets out of bed by trying to do the impossible what do you think drove you to do the impossible like why I know you got roped into it a little bit, but like what gets you out of the bed in the morning right now?
1: Honestly, I mean, I'll give Z a lot of credit for for pushing the envelope in many different directions. And I think that that kind of pulls me along. Me and Z, we've been, we've been hustling since we were like little kids. Like when we were like in eighth grade, we were selling like Pokemon cards. When we were in 10th grade, we figured out how to use eBay and, and we were selling like popular Christmas toys before they got hot for the season. And, you know, just stuff like that. We, we had a lawn mowing business when we were like, I think in as soon as Z got his driver's license, and you know, I would help Z, Z would drive the car around and we will go mow So we we'd always like, but Z would be the one that thinks of the idea and be like, yo, we could totally start this business or we can totally, you know, play poker and, and keep climbing to 510, 1020, 10, 2550. So Z would kind of like push it along and I'll kind of be like, okay, like how do we make this sustainable? How do we make it so that we can like win at these stakes? Or how how do we make it that? Yeah. So I mean, I think Z pushes the envelope and then the thing that drives me is like, okay, how do we make this sustainable? I know that we can do this restaurant thing, but I, I know we can do it more efficiently. I know we can do it more effectively. When it comes to poker, it's kind of like, okay, well, these are pretty dangerous stakes, but how do we win at these stakes and, and make it like, at least like really plus EV and things like that. And I had my own strategy around that. And my strategies were completely different than Z's strategies because Z likes doing the hard thing. I like doing the easy thing. So, I mean, I can go into that a little further if about poker if, necessary. But, but yeah, I think what gets me out of bed is trying to figure out how to make it easier. That's not like the Mamba mindset. That's not like what Kobe Bryant would say, but you know, that's, that's me. It's literally like, yo, what's the 80, 20. And how do I do that as quick as possible? Systemizing things.
0: I got to pull on that thread. So why do you think this figuring it out, the systematizing, the making it easier? Why do you think you find that so motivating? Okay. This is
1: not going to be a glorifying answer, but it'll be an honest answer. I think I find it motivating because I've always kind of been like that. I've always been like a little bit on the lazy side, but I've always wanted to like still like kind of like achieve things. So let's say in poker, you know, obviously I, I want to win money, but I, you know, I don't want to be, you know, spending all my time in hold a manager, like like reading all the charts and like doing all that stuff. So I want to minimize the hard work, but maximize like the, maximize like the, the gains. So I'm still trying to win, but I don't have like the same energy output of, let's say someone like Z, like Z can literally work 80 hours a week. He can read 10 books a week if he wanted to. And he probably does honestly, <laughs> and he doesn't get tired and he will outwork the competition because that's like, he loves it. I don't know how he does that. I'll do like the 40, 50 hours a week. You know, I'll try to keep my work life balance, but I have to figure out how I can do more in 40 to 50 hours. If I want to, you know, be in the same conversation as like someone like Z. And so I think that's why it's, you know, you aggregate that over the years. And it's just kind of become my thing to like figure out, okay, well, what's, what's the best strategy here? How do I save like output and make sure that it's efficient and effective? I mean, I have an example, like, you know, from poker, like a lot of my strategy, a lot of Z strategy was just almost like get into whatever game you could and just try to, you know, beat the hell out of whoever was on the other side of the table. And he was pretty good at that. But a lot of my strategy in poker, at least was once I realized the 80, 20 rule and I applied it to poker and I looked at my holding manager and I saw, oh, wait, these you know, out of hundred players, these 10 guys are giving me 80% of my earnings. Well, that changes, you know, how I'm gonna go about this. I'm literally just gonna abandon any good sleep habits. And I'm just gonna be awake anytime any of these 10 guys log in. And that's what I'm gonna do. And I'm probably gonna make more money playing less hours. So it's like a, an easier path to the prize. If the end goal is money in poker, I think for a lot of people it is. For some people, it's to be the best, but for me, that wasn't the case. So, yeah, so I don't know. I just like shortcutting things, I guess.
0: I can relate to that a lot. (laughs) You made me think of, I I wrote this post last year called Play to Win that sort of, explaining why i think that the game theory optimal or gto approach is an evolutionary dead end and after i put it out it's like did i just spend months writing 5000 words to justify why i don't have to do all this work that everyone else is doing and there's just there's kind of a a sick enjoyment of finding the most direct path towards a goal. It's like, I have this belief that we don't need to work so hard. I think that's something that really surprises people who I work with, that they come in expecting to learn these secrets on how they can get more work done. And a lot of our conversations revolve around how they can work less, but still achieve the same results by obviously working smarter but being more clear on what they're trying to achieve and what those few actions are that really matter towards that result. And that's why I really love that analogy you have of driving the car and one partner is the gas and one partner is the brake is you really need someone who's bumping into reality, pushing forward, experimenting, trying things, but it'd be very easy to burn out if all you had going for you was pure effort. And that's why that figuring out that you talk about in the restaurant industry, especially the importance of systemization, of having clear checklists, turning everything into a process, that's what makes something sustainable. And if you're going after something that's going to take a long time to achieve, whether it's reaching the top of the poker world or building a successful chain of restaurants, you need to be in it for the long term. There's this this saying in investing is you got to stay in the game. If you go broke, you're out. That's really the only way to lose is going broke. So what do you need to do to make sure that you can stay in the game for long enough in order to win it? So you mentioned habits. This seems like the most important part of a transition. Poker players just have notoriously bad habits. A lot of this is driven by playing industry hours, sort of like restaurants where you're up very late sometimes you need to play for 12 hours straight sometimes you know that really fun player you like to play with is hopping on and you have to drop everything you're doing to do that and that kind of creates this this on call feeling and you know shifting to more of an owner or a managerial role where it needs you to show up on time to be hyper organized to think about things at a higher level how are you able to start to shift your habits from the habits necessary to succeed in poker to the habits necessary to succeed as an entrepreneur?
1: So I'm still working on that. That definitely isn't an easy transition. Like I was saying, and you know, like, like you're saying, poker players definitely are notoriously, they have like some bad habits where like they would get fired from a regular job like so quick, you know, just because you have to be on time to things. You have to like, you know, deadlines are important. like due date. You know, like it's basic things that you probably pick up just from, your first couple of years at a normal job, in poker, and then especially for me, like when I'm playing the high stakes games, like like I told you, my strategy was, once I realized, hey, these ten guys were the guys that were giving me all the money. My strategy evolved around tossing out my sleep schedule. You know, you don't know how many times I probably just, you know, took some caffeine at 3 a.m. even though I probably should be sleeping because a guy just logged on and no one's going to be there until 9 a.m. and you know, throwing the circadian rhythm out of the window. I had no idea how bad that was for for my body and and whatever at the time, but. That made it so that, you know, I could stay on top using the most direct path and the easiest way to get there. Now, transitioning to the, like a regular job, you have to be on time to things. I never had to be on time to things. In fact, it actually probably punished me to be on time to things because if I was prioritizing being on time to, let's say that appointment or whatever, I might miss out on a game where I would make a lot of money. You know, like you don't know how many times I probably just bumped an appointment just because the guy that I'm playing hasn't hasn't finished losing his money yet. (laughs) So then like you switch to a world where everything you did for the last 10 years that rewarded you and you reinforce these habits, you have to unlearn that. And then you also have to learn new ones. And I'm definitely still struggling with that. I don't have any like, like great tips on it. I do think there are some keystone habits to help. I think meditation was very foundational for me because a lot of times you can kind of pay attention to when your, your habits like start getting triggered and stuff like that. So I think meditation would be the one habit that I've built that's helped the most with like all the other stuff. And I've been trying a lot of stuff too, but I don't have any, like, yo, Hey, aside from the meditation thing, like I would say, if you're not meditating, that's literally the one thing that's helped me so much.
0: I love this notion of a keystone habit where you have one habit that if you're consistent with it, acts as this foundation for everything else. And meditation is maybe the best keystone habit in that if you cultivate this ability to listen, to sit still, to be present, to be patient, it's going to have all of these cascading effects on the rest of your life. So let's say that we're talking to a poker player who's mass tabling tournaments or cash games online, or a trader who's sitting in front of their six screens and all the charts. And they're like, I don't have the time to meditate. I mean, I can barely sit still. You know, you can see them, their hands are shaking a little bit. Like what recommendations would you have for someone who is interested in the benefits that meditation could offer them, but doesn't feel like they're the type of person who can? Man, that's a tough question.
1: Generally speaking, the people that feel like they can't meditate probably need it the most. I think personally, just because I know where I came from in that regard and, you know, when you're just kind of like, well, I have too many thoughts, so I can't meditate. Well, did you know that when you meditate, you actually start processing some of those, those thoughts and it kind of like clears that inbox out for you, your internal inbox a little bit, and then you start having less thoughts over time. But at the same time, you, you can't be like, well, you, it's so hard because like you, that person probably should be meditating or at least like, you know, if you don't got 20 minutes, you know, just do it for a minute, like do it for 30 seconds, like just Buy a meditation pillow and don't even set a timer. Just sit for as long as you want and then just get up. And I think if you just do that every single day, then something might form. But I mean, my advice would be to start super small with the meditation. Because I started with one minute, honestly. I started with one minute. I was like, I can do one minute every day. That's not a big deal. And then once one minute was easy and it became easy really quick. I was like, okay, two minutes. And that's how honestly I started. I started that like probably eight years ago or something like that. And now I'm probably doing... You know, like 20, 20, 30 minutes a day. And it builds up over time, but you really have to start with something that you feel like you could probably do every single day if you're gonna start. And if you don't have one minute, then it's really hard to be like, okay, well, here's a nugget of wisdom that will give you the same thing that meditation will that isn't exactly meditation. Yeah, I I feel like you you have to do something. And I, I feel like if you have to do something, it has to be like start with as small as you can, even if it's 10 seconds, that's like better than zero.
0: Yeah. The the saying that I love is so low, you can't say no. Make that amount you have to do in order to check the box so impossibly small. This idea of like, hey, once you're doing one push-up a day, it's really easy to ramp up from 10 to 100, but it's going from that zero to one. That's the hardest. And this is why it's really, really important to have a low time preference, which is just a fancy way of saying, recognizing that you will have the rest of your life to harvest the benefits of that habit. So it's really worthwhile. I think we've been talking a lot about sustainability. It's really worthwhile to invest upfront in making a habit sustainable, even if there aren't a lot of benefits upfront that a lot of those benefits will continue to compound over the course of a lifetime. And yeah, I think you had a lot of wisdom in what you said around the people who feel like they can't probably need it the most something that my meditation teacher likes to tell me is if you don't have 20 minutes to sit down and be quiet, you probably need two hours, right? This is a signal that your mental inbox, as you put it, is just overflowing. And if you aren't processing that stuff, you're going to be making some really big, costly mistakes. And who knows how that will manifest. You know, Maybe it's making a large trade that's maybe not one that you would have made if you were thinking about things a little bit more calmly, or you blow up at a significant other or a loved one. And it's not really because you're mad at them, but because you feel stressed and overwhelmed. It's, it's really important to have these practices in place that allow our best selves to show up. This is something that I've really seen consistently when I work with a portfolio manager or a trader is you want to be able to go from a zero to 10 where a lot of people find themselves is in this anxious seven where they're just at this low level of engagement all the time. Like they're eating dinner with their family. They're sitting outside with the sun hitting them on a nice day. And they just can't get that trade out of their head. Like, oh man, like, why did I play that hand that way? That was so dumb. And if you operate at this level all the time, you never get the chance to recharge. If you never get the chance to recharge, you can never be fully dialed in. So this is something that you see a lot with high performance is that when they're not in the arena, when they're not in this performance environment, they're able to completely turn off and recharge so that they can really show up. An example I love to share is, you know, when I lived in New York, I lived with one of the best pianists in the world, like top five, in my opinion, piano player. And when he played, he would just like attack the piano, just a ferocity. There's so much energy. I feel like, how do you live with someone like that? Like I'm like, he's not like that except for like 15 minutes a day. The rest of the time he's chilling, he's relaxing, he's reading. You can't operate at that level all the time. You need to be able to unplug and recharge. So I I love that you chose meditation a a habit. That's such a compliment, such an opposite to this necessary mindset of being fully dialed in. You're smiling. I want to hear what you have to say about that.
1: And I I know like picking meditation is almost like, it's almost like too mainstream now. You know, it's like, okay, like everyone's like saying like meditate. Okay. So when I was 25 or or 26, 27, around that time range, that was when I started meditating. Now I was so logical, like logic brained back then, like my friends would call me like a robot and it, it probably served me at that time. But in order for me to be convinced that meditation was something that was important, it was because I wanted to like perform better. And at the time, Tim Ferriss's podcast, or or he was spouting something like 80% of the high performers that he interviewed for Tools of Titans, the book he had, like 80% of those guys meditated, and these are the highest performers of the world. So that's all I needed to know. So I guess it depends on what you're motivated to do, but I can't see if, if, you know, somebody's trying to perform better, the guy that's like 16 tabling, you want to perform better is my assumption. So All these guys are doing it that are the highest performers in the world. So if that's the carrot that you need, then that's the carrot that you need to like kind of get started. Now, after I got started, I realized I understand now why high performers needed to meditate in order to, or have a meditation practice. And one, one more thing I wanted to say, I mean, your entire life experience is literally your mind and your body affect your life experience so much. Like what's going on in your head, the voice in your head, if you're thinking and stuff like that it affects your life experience so much and you can't afford to spend 10 minutes to sit down and just shut up for 10 minutes and just pay attention to it, to see what's going on in there. You know what I mean? Like how would that not give you that ROI back that 10 minutes? You will get that back for sure at some point, because I mean, the mechanism by, by which you're experiencing life is a lot of it's internal. A lot of it's like your mind, like what it's, what it's picking up on the voice in your head. Like, you know, when you're thinking like what, what thoughts you're having, what emotional experiences you're having like in your body. And most of the time that goes so under the radar, you're not even aware of it. Now, if you want to have a better life, and I think most people do, you know, they want to have better life experiences or, you know, better day-to-day second to second experiences. And you don't have 10 minutes to check what's going on underneath the hood. That makes like literally like, you know, zero, zero dollars a cents. You know, it's, you're, you're just, you're not going to, So, yeah, so that's my little, like, that's how much it's helped me. So I'm relatively, I guess, passionate about at least talking from my experience.
0: Good. Yeah, I think there's really two angles to think about this. First, I love that you talk about just being overdeveloped intellectually. Like, I used to belong to these forums where we would study rational thinking as if we could turn into robots and be completely rational. And I think a lot of people listening to this can relate is like, we're just going to think our way out of everything and realize that like, like a muscle I had, let's say like, I always skip leg day, the equivalent. I'm always just working buys and tries and I'm super like intellectual and rational and I can just solve everything. And the problem is I neglected the emotional side, the spiritual side, my intuition. And if you've never experienced what it's like to just intuitively feel and understand exactly what the right answer is, like I really recommend it because it's a really powerful place to work from, to just know and be able to move with full conviction. And that is a privilege that really only comes from lots of waiting without waiting. As I like to say, like you gotta sit without expectations and listen, and it will just emerge, it will pop up. But the problem with doing everything intellectually is that the rational mind becomes a crutch. When you don't have your models to line on, when you don't have your charts, when you don't have your second brain with all of your notes, you'll be lost. Because that part of you that's more intuitive, that draws on your internalized experience, is going to be underdeveloped. You won't be able to trust it. And thus, you won't be able to move and seize opportunities. So, it's really important to try to cultivate this balance in your life that you have these signals from your body that you can trust if you trust them, right? The more evidence that you have that. What you feel is something that can be acted upon, that you can work with it, the more you'll be able to work with it. I also think you touched on this other side that I think is equally important is that subjective experience matters. Like If you have good habits, good mindset, you will have a better life. And it's crazy to have that caveat. It's like, I think most people want to have a better life, but you look at the evidence of how people act in the world, and sometimes it's not clear. A lot of the ways that we like to justify, hey, look how successful that CEO is who works 100 hours a week man, it would be awesome to be like that. No, you want to be the CEO, but you don't want to work the hundred, no one wants to work the hundred hours a week. You can't have one without the other necessarily, right? I like to say, everyone wants to be a rock star. No one wants to spend years traveling around in a crappy van, drinking beer and eating pizza, right? Everyone wants to like have the final result without all the work. You need to think about the sustainability. How do you get there? And anyone who's listening to this, who is like number goes up, like, you know, their poker tracker graph, their morning star, their portfolio, whatever it is, the numbers look great, but you don't feel happy or fulfilled. This should be a prompt to say, Hey, I'm missing something. Is this actually sustainable? Because it matters. And do, I love that, man. I, a lot of what you're saying, I relate to, you know, when you're talking about,
1: Hey, I was in this forum trying to be like the most rational, you know, trying to figure out if we can think our way through things. I I was there probably 10, 12 years ago. I probably would have been in that form if if I knew about it. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. But then, but then like, you know, coming from what, what I know now, I feel like I have a much deeper understanding of how my mind works, how my body works, how my emotions work. And through meditation, I think that was the first step of allowing me to have that level of awareness. But like this mechanism of the mind, the body and whatever that you're trying to optimize to make it perform higher. If you don't understand how it works, then how are you supposed to optimize it? Let's say you're making all this money like, you know, through stocks or through Poker Tracker, but then like the number's going up, but then somehow you don't feel fulfilled. You wake up and you're like, you know, it doesn't feel good. You know, there was probably some sort of belief that you had, well, if I had more money, I'd feel good. But once you understand that that's not true and you don't have the level of awareness to, to notice that emotion in yourself and then do something about it, and you can go your entire life, even though you have like a lot of money in the bank account, having a subpar life experience, and that would just be—I don't think anyone, anybody would want that. And when we were talking before, I was saying that it's like your car has a check engine light on, and meditation allows you to see, oh wait, the check engine light is on. Why is that there? I mean, if you if you ever had a check engine light on that you just kind of like left, you know, for longer than you should have, then you kind of know what what happens eventually to your car. <laughs> it's the same idea. It's like if you meditate, you actually look under the hood and be like, Oh wait, like this piece is out of place or maybe I need a new, like whatever, or maybe I should work on this. So, um, so yeah, a lot of what you said I totally resonate with and I'm really happy you put some light around that.
0: Well, we got some great questions in the Q and a, so I'm going to, I'm going to hand it off. This first question comes from Anthony who How did you shift from that zero-sum mindset to a positive-sum mindset? It seems like it would have been very easy for you to get stuck in the zero-sum mindset even after leaving poker.
1: So I'll be honest. I probably didn't do it intentionally because I didn't even know it was a, a problem, if you will. So like when I left poker and then I started asking different questions and I noticed that these, and I'm sure meditation played a role in this, but I noticed that, hey, these are different questions I'm asking. I'm actually trying to figure out how to help this guy get better. And if I help them get better, it actually helps me too. And, and isn't that like, like so dope, you know, and I had no idea that that, that was a thing. And then, so a lot of the questions I was asking, I probably luck boxed myself into it. Cause I just went into this business and then it made sense. Oh yeah. If I take care of the customer, I'll keep coming back. Oh wait, if the customer keeps coming back, then that helps me too. So if I help them, it helps me and then if I help my employees, then, then will help them. So it, it was kind of like, I had to remove myself out of the environment where the zero sum thing was happening, if you will. And, you know, I didn't do that through like sheer willpower of my own. I wasn't like, oh yeah, I want to quit poker and go do this. I mean, there was a lot of different things that made it make sense for me to quit poker. And then after I left the environment that I was in afterwards rewarded you for having a zero sum mentality. And so, so yeah, I think the answer is it was an environmental shift for me. The people I hung out with were different. The the strategies to get success in, in this new environment was different and it it just required a positive sum strategy. Not required, but it, that was the one I gravitated towards. You probably could win in the restaurant using a zero sum strategy as well. It just didn't feel right for me, so.
0: I have a follow-up on that. So if environment is so critical, which I agree that it is, how do you identify positive sum environments or positive sum people?
1: I think it's hard to tell. It's definitely hard to tell because if someone is a zero sum or a negative sum person, it's not like they wear it on their sleeve and you, know, you go around... And, you know, like they have like a label on their forehead or something like that. I think generally for me, like I try to, I think Adam Grant wrote a book on it called Give and Take. So, I mean, I'm sure he's articulated like really well because, you know, that dude's an amazing author, but in his book, and this is, it was weird because when I read this book, it was, I mean, I probably read this book like eight years ago, but it was like kind of like game changing for me. So in the book, he talks about how there's, he answers the question, is it better to be a giver or a taker? Who are the higher performers, givers or takers? And he also nuanced that there's also people called matchers that, you know, anytime someone does something for them, they will do exactly the same thing back because they don't want to, they don't want to take from somebody, but they also don't want to be the, stick their neck out either. And so is it better to be a giver, taker or a matcher? By the end of the book, he talks about how it's best to be a giver, but it's also worse to be a giver. So the highest performers and the lowest performers were both givers. And in that book, you know, the ideas around positive, sum game, he, he talks a lot about that. He says that the smart givers are the ones that perform the best. So what they do is they give initially, but then they kind of see how the other person plays the game. If the other person plays the game, you know, in a way where they're just like takers, meaning like you give them something and they literally never give anything back and they're just going around, you know, taking, 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 then you stop giving, you know, that's a smart giver. Now, a not a smart giver would just keep giving, you know, indiscriminately and then obviously get taken advantage of and be also the lowest performers. So my strategy kind of like, is taken from Adam Grant and I would give, but I would try to give smartly and see what strategy other people are playing.
0: last time we saw each other in Texas here, you said something really, really powerful that really struck me that I've been, I've been thinking a lot about since you said, I don't have to receive love to give love. And I think this is such a powerful idea that really seems like a natural extension of this Adam Grant, you know, givers and takers idea that if we are waiting for others to make the first move, we might always be waiting, but also that this reciprocity exists, that if we lead with being a giver, with being a positive, some person people can't help but respond to that, or at least we open the door, create an opportunity for them to respond in kind. So yeah, I mean, I thought it was just such a beautiful way of putting how to live a positive sum life and to just give a freely given gift that others can respond to or not, that the response doesn't matter, but that it's worth doing regardless. So yeah, I just wanted to express thank you for saying that. Yeah, man, I appreciate
1: that. Yeah, I, I don't even remember that I said that, honestly. But <laughs> I probably said something like that, and you probably
0: just made it sound so much better. I take good notes. So yeah, you had, you had some good stuff I'll share. second question, this one comes in from a friend of mine, Andrew Chen, a fellow poker pro who went into the restaurant game with Halal Guys. I bet you guys would, would hit it off. Andrew asks, so restaurants are generally considered a bad bet. What research did you and Z do before you decided to floor it into the restaurant industry? Were there any key things that you saw that said, hey, despite the numbers saying this is a very dumb thing to do, I think we can actually do this? This would probably be more of a funny
1: answer than a useful answer, but here we are. So yeah, Andrew, sorry, I don't have a, I don't have a great answer. I know as poker players, we like to you know, do things based on numbers and obviously be like, uh, yo, this is this is why I made that play. I know Z's really good at that in poker, but it's funny because maybe he's not so great at that with like things like restaurants. He literally just floored the car into the, like we, knowing what I know now, we did definitely didn't know enough. And we probably didn't do enough due diligence beforehand as well. I do agree that restaurants are probably a relatively bad investment in a lot of ways. I don't think we're in it for the money as much as we're in it to see if we can do it in a hard industry. If I had to, talk about why Z like floored it into the restaurant game. So yeah, I wish I had a more useful answer, but yeah, sometimes, you know, I, th- I think, his strategy here is, yo, just get into it. And then when you get there, you figure it out. I don't know how I'm going to get from A to Z, but if I go from A to D, then I'm already kind of like making my way and, you know, we're, we're making our way. So.
0: What skills, attributes, resources did you and Z think that you had that would allow you to make it where others had failed?
1: Well, I mean, at the time we were playing online poker and we were making a ton of money playing poker. So, I mean, the saying that if you want to, was it, if you want to make a million dollars in the restaurant industry, then you go ahead and start with two and then eventually you end up with only one. So I guess we had the, I guess we had our own personal financial backing to employ that strategy, if you will. So, so that was probably the main edge. I personally probably didn't think we had the skill set that would have been necessary for the restaurant game. I'm sure Z was probably like, well, you know, like I've done harder things like climb to the nosebleeds, like on online poker, and that's harder than opening a restaurant. So this should be easy. But I don't think he was thinking in terms of like skill set. Z might argue otherwise. So I will say that with that caveat, but personally, from my perspective, I don't think Z was thinking, hey, I have these skills so that, you know, I, I will be able to, I think he thought that because he had really good poker skills, whatever the skill skills were with poker, it would just translate into any industry. I don't think that that is the case. But me and him will probably argue for days about that if if he watch this podcast, which he might eventually.
0: Yeah, I think you did say something that was interesting is the implication that a lot of people are in it for the money and that you guys weren't. So that created a little bit more of a risk tolerance and a sense of curiosity and embracing the, the inherent challenges of it because you weren't as anchored on needing to succeed. I do think that's something that I see a lot in life is the people who are able to make it in something that's really competitive, aren't doing it for the money. They have something else that's driving them. And it does feel like there is a commonality of, Hey, let's see if I can do this and just being curious about the results.
1: Yeah, totally agree with that. I honestly do things. He just wants to know if he can do it. And here's him trying, and he'll try his hardest. And I think that's his edge. Perhaps that's the skill set that he brings that I think gives him an edge in the, in the industry. I mean, I think he'll outwork his competition, similar to what he did in poker. But I don't know if that counts as like a skill set. You know, it's not like hey, like I some restaurant specific skill set that I have. That's something other than working hard.
0: I do think it's a life skill set. I mean, I think. There's very few people in the world who could say with a straight face that they're trying their best. But if we are optimizing for a life free of regret, that's really the only way to go about it, right? If you try your best, if you leave everything on the table, then what do you have regret? You did the best you could. Everything else was outside of your control. Let the cards fall where they may. Let the pandemic fall where it may. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. Last question for today. Hack, thank you so much. This has been a blast. This question comes from Derek Scholl. Hack, what do you wish you had known before going from a solo poker player to an entrepreneur managing teams of people in entire restaurants?
1: Let me try to think back to when I was like, what, 28, 29, 30 when this happened. I think I did know some of this stuff, but you don't actually know until you actually get into it. So if I had known it not just intellectually, but like deep into my bones, then it would have been better. But for sure, the challenges are different. I mean, the the question specifically, you know, talks about like managing teams, you know, when you're managing a team and as the team gets bigger and bigger, there are more relationships and people are complex. You know, that is probably the biggest challenge. Like you have to get per restaurant, 30 people aligned and working together. And then, you know, people have drama and have issues and stuff. I didn't know how hard that would be. That literally is probably the hardest thing. And it's not, it's not people's fault. I mean, it's literally just how people, people are. And I think one of the major things that makes restaurants hard is because in order to scale a restaurant, you have to scale proportionally with people. Like if you want to go from one restaurant to five restaurants, you need five times more people. You can't, it's not like an app where you go from, you know, 10 downloads to like hundred downloads to a thousand downloads. And then it just scales like in a log sense, as opposed to like a, a linear sense. So yeah, that, the biggest challenge for sure is understanding that the challenge was about people, but that's been also like one of the most fun challenges too, because in order to understand people, the best way to understand people is you really have to figure out how to understand yourself first. And, you know, and when we're talking about meditation and stuff, that's what that stuff is for. So it kind of like pushed me deeper down to that path. Like you, you're not going to be able to empathize with your worker. If you don't know how, how to empathize for yourself, you don't know how to have compassion for yourself. So, so yeah, I wish I knew how hard that was, but you know, I'm also grateful that I didn't know how hard that was. Cause maybe if I knew how hard that was, I wouldn't have even, you know, went down that path in the first place. And, and it probably wouldn't have led to all this self-inquiry of knowing myself better so I can help other people.
0: In a a recent Forcing Function Hour episode with Tan and Fam, where we were talking about how to manage teams, the point was brought up that if you want to do something of any type of scale or impact, it's going to have to involve other people. So I think it's inherent in the question is like poker, trading, like you can have support systems, but essentially you're in there on your own. And if you want to build a business, if you want to create something of large-scale impact, it's going to need to involve others because you can and should not try to do everything by yourself. In order to have any sort of scale, you need to focus on those things that have the greatest leverage, which you do best, and find people who complement you, people who can help accelerate, amplify what you're doing. So anyone out there who's ambitious, like, you're going to have to learn how to hire, to manage, to delegate at some point and recognizing that no one gets it right the first time. I've never talked to a single person who their first hire works out great. You said you brought on this guy with 30 years of experience and a month later you had to fire him and you're back at worse than square one, right? Everyone messes up the first time. And if you're going to have to pay this tuition, you might as well pay it early. Like the stakes are not going to get lower. So make those mistakes. Early, and I love what you said about hiring being a way to inquire on yourself, to build empathy, to understand yourself. We're really big on this concept of forcing function, is like bringing someone on your team has a lot of second order cascading effects of understanding what your purpose is and being able to articulate that to others to turning all the things that we store inside of our head into a process that someone else can can not only follow, hopefully they can own so that they can run independently. And if you don't have that need, it might not happen. So this is a definitely an area where within reason, flooring it makes sense because the only way to learn this skill is to learn by making all the mistakes up front.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, man. Thanks for cleaning up that answer. Cause I was, I was kind of thinking it out loud, but then you just like really tied that into like a nice, like little nice little bow. So yeah. Thank you for for that.
0: Well, speaking of tying things into a bow, man, I feel like we're just getting started. So thank you so much for, for being present here today. Any final words, any place that you'd want to, you know, leave the listener? Anything else you'd like to share from our conversation today?
1: I don't really have a, a strong digital presence. So it, I don't have a, a website to go to or any of that stuff. I would just say, you know, thanks, Chris, for having me on the podcast. I mean, it was, this conversation has been really enjoyable for me, like 100%. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I guess if anyone's been thinking about meditation, they should probably just, you know,
0: start. There you go, guys. Just start, just do it. That's all for today. Thank you so much for joining us Hack and see you all again soon. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live.